of God from Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say about Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to one who works, his wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as his due. And to one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. So also David pronounces a blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not reckon his sin. Is this blessing pronounced only upon the circumcised or also upon the uncircumcised? We say that faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received circumcision as a sign or seal of the righteousness which he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised and who thus have righteousness reckoned to them and likewise the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also follow the example of the faith which our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. The promise to Abraham and his descendants that they should inherit the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham, for he is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead because he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. But the words it was reckoned to him were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be reckoned to us who believe in him that raised from the dead Jesus, our Lord, who 
was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let us pray. Increase our faith, O God, as we approach your holy word and enlighten us by the ministry of the Holy Spirit of the precious and deep meanings therein. Through Christ the living word we pray. Amen. Two weeks ago when we looked together at the third chapter of Romans, we saw two great pillars there. One, the native, sinful, spiritual condition of man, dead in trespasses. And the other, the righteous character of God, who is both just and merciful, both the justifier of those who believe and remaining just by paying the penalty for their sin. Resting on these two pillars was the great truth of verse 28 in chapter 3, for we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of law. Now the apostle, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, moving into chapter 4, brings the searchlight of his penetrating gaze upon this matter of saving faith. And all of chapter 4 is dealing with the nature and essence and illustration of faith, running like a constant thread through the scripture. It is a most beautiful truth. Chapter 4 also applies saving faith to our lives and engages us in the whole question of what is saving faith and how are we to regard it. In fact, when you finish meditating upon chapter 4 of Romans, you'd be apt to say as its great theme that the most precious treasure of the believer is the righteousness that comes through faith. The most precious treasure of the believer is the righteousness that comes through faith. Therefore, faith itself, saving faith, must be a most marvelous gift. It has been chosen by God for a certain use. Other graces and virtues there are. They help us to grow. But only faith has been chosen by God to unite us to Christ. Faith is a special kind of grace, singled out from all the others, to be cherished and marveled at and reveled in by the people of God. This fourth chapter is a challenge because it asks us to do that marveling as it moves through the epics and illustrations of saving faith. Let's touch some of those. For instance, the chapter begins by pointing the fact that saving faith is no novelty at all, but that it is deeply rooted in the scriptures of God. It's not something that began with Paul or with Luther. Saving faith did not begin at Bethlehem. It began in the earliest part of the human history. There with Abraham, the best man of his day, perhaps, who called out of moon worship 
obeyed God and left his country. Yet, for all his virtue and obedience, Abraham only was righteous because he believed. That is, saving faith, according to Genesis 15, was the reason God reckoned him as righteous. Now, for the children here, the word reckon means to count as or to esteem as, to put to someone's account. And so when Abraham was accounted righteous, it doesn't mean he was made righteous, but it means that in God's book he was listed as righteous. And God saw him as righteous on the basis of this saving faith. Now this unfolds a whole truth for us that we must grasp. And the truth is, is revealed clearly here in verses 4 and 5. To one who works, his wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as his due. If a man worked his way to heaven, the gates of heaven would only be his wages. But if a man did not work his way, but rested on a gift, then his passage is wholly free. And Abraham's was utterly free. He received righteousness and entrance into heaven, not because of anything he did, but because of this faith, which was counted to him as righteousness. And there's the beautiful marvel in verse 5, to one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly. There's the description of our great God, the one who justifies the ungodly. This is what made the New Testament saints marvel and sing. The paradox that the righteous God justified the ungodly. He didn't justify the righteous in themselves, but the unrighteous. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, said the Lord Jesus. There are many, perhaps some of you, who are rejecting the grace of God because they regard themselves as unworthy of that grace. They think there has to be some worthiness within them before God could ever pour out any grace upon them. That looks to be humble at first, but it is really colossal pride. It suggests that the basis is our own goodness. And what we need to remember is that the God who has revealed himself to us is the one who justifies the ungodly who believe. David becomes a great illustration of this. David was most ungodly. He said, My bones wax old within me day and night. He said, The hand of God is heavy upon me. He said, The moisture of my body is dried up like the drought of summer. But when God saw his faith and reckoned him as righteous, then he sang in Psalm 32, Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven. How happy they are, their sins are covered. The man against whom the Lord will not reckon his sin. And David is illustrating that justification has in it both the imputing or accounting of the merit of Christ to the person, the removal of the punishment that is due him, and the restoring of favor and blessedness between God and man which was forfeited in sin. Why do we marvel over saving faith? Because it has this historic and ancient past. From the beginning, 
after the fall, God dealt with us on the basis of saving faith. And with that, we can rejoice. The passage goes on to bring out an even more interesting and powerful reveling in the faith that saves. Verses 9 to 12 could have as their caption words like this. Saving faith is the answer for everybody. Saving faith is the answer for everybody. Because immediately we might be apt to think Abraham and David were special people. Abraham was set apart as a patriarch and David a king. But now Paul by the Spirit makes very clear that when Abraham was circumcised, beginning that right, when he began that, it was at least 14 years after the time that he was justified by faith. At least 14 years, perhaps longer. So that circumcision, as God's seal put upon Abraham, had nothing to do directly with that justification. It came later. It came as a sign and seal of that justification and of that sanctification, the, the putting away of the pollution of sin. Now these signs and seals that God gives are beautiful and to be loved. God loves saving sinners so much that he confirms and strengthens his promise with these signs and seals like circumcision. Passover, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. But we are never to think that these seals or signs themselves accomplish the saving. That would be a grave error. They do not. Does the rainbow prevent floods? No. The rainbow is God's sign that he will not send a flood. But the rainbow in itself does not prevent. It is God who prevents the flood. Thus, baptism or circumcision do not justify, and we must never be found saying they do. And often the rejection of these rites comes from the fact of those who think that somehow it is conceived that they do justify. They do not justify. Let that be said clearly and loudly. They only ratify and confirm what God has already done or what he promised us to do if the person believes. Now the reason that Paul takes pains to point out that Abraham was circumcised before, that he was justified before circumcision is this, that he might be the father of all who believe, both Jew and Gentile. Now that's very important. Abraham is now the father of every genuine believer. So that when Paul wrote these four verses, 9 to 12, with his pen under the power of the Holy Spirit, he brought down a mighty veil that separated Jew from Gentile. He crushed the wall of partition with his pen so that there are no longer two special groups with which God is, is blessing or whom God favors. But now there is one family of God those who are circumcised, the Jews, when they believe, they're the children of Abraham. And those who are not circumcised, the Gentiles, when they believe, they are children of Abraham. Therefore, 
of God who has the privilege of saving faith has any right to racial prejudice of any kind, certainly not anti-Semitism or any other form of racial prejudice that would erect barriers where God has broken them down. We are one in Christ Jesus our Lord. Remember we said the caption over this paragraph might be God's answer for every man. And if it's true that saving faith is God's prescription for the human heart, then it's a universal one. And there is no other. And whoever would respond to God's love and grace must respond with faith. He has not made any other way available to sinners. When God does such a lovely and gracious work as making a universal path by which the human heart can find him in repentance and faith, then it is incumbent upon every human heart to take that and not looking for a better or other or easier route, but to come the way Christ calls. Then the passage moves on at verse 13. A new word is introduced, and I hope you see it there, the second word, promise. It's the sweetest word apart from the name of our Lord in the whole chapter, promise. What is the promise to Abraham and his descendants that they should inherit the world? You remember how God made a covenant with Abraham. It had three elements in it. The first was that a land should be given. The second, that the people should multiply as the dust of the earth. And the third, that in the seed of Abraham should all nations of the earth be blessed. The first two aspects appear to be physical. That is, the land was a physical promise, the land of Palestine given to the Jewish people under Abraham. It does not mean perpetually. For we read in Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, that if I announce to a people that I will give them a land, and later on they do evil, I will reconsider and take the land from them. And this is precisely though we must say it with tears in our heart. Our Lord Jesus came to his own, and his own received him not. And they gave up their right to the land in any divine sense by that awful rejection. The second aspect of the promise is that there would be, Abraham's seed would be as multiplied as the sand or the dust of the earth. And though Abraham had great doubts about that and great difficulty believing that, nevertheless the Spirit of God re reassured and strengthened his faith and this came to pass through Isaac until the children of Abraham by natural seed are as many as the stars of the heavens when it's taken symbolically. But the third aspect is the one that is under prominent view here. And that is the spiritual aspect, that in the seed of Abraham shall all nations of the earth be blessed. 
What does that mean? Well, the Apostle Paul interprets that in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. The promises made, were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, singular, and to your offspring, which is Christ. Now here Paul, writing by the inspiration, shows that the seed of Abraham was Jesus Christ. In thy seed, Abraham, shall all nations of the earth be blessed. And all oh, when the Redeemer came, the seed of Abraham, how what a fountain began to flow in him that reached out to every clime and nature and culture and color and people, blessing and blessing and blessing. And we share in that, as Paul says in the 29th verse of chapter 3 in Galatians. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So that everyone who is in Christ also becomes an heir of the promise made to Abraham. You are heirs of the promise in him. And we rejoice that it is saving faith that has brought us to this standing that we inherit and celebrate and live out the promise made to our father Abraham in this hour. Now the promise never could have been guaranteed to us if it were on the basis of law. If in order to take part in this wonderful promise of being the blessing to the whole world, you had to keep the law perfectly, then long ago the promise would have died out. But the reason the promise can go on from generation to generation, and we can be heirs of it and share in it and revel in it, is precisely because it is by grace through faith and not through law. Therefore, faith becomes the thing to celebrate. It is the entrance to the promise. And oh, what a promise it is. I wonder if we've ever fathomed its height or depth. It's a world-embracing promise. It's not a little puny promise. It's a cosmic promise. Because it says there in chapter 4 of Romans, that they should inherit the world. That is, the spiritual seed of Abraham are to be heirs of the world. Think of that. And Paul unfolds that to us too when he says in another place, all things are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Marvel over it, my friend that the kingdoms of this world are going to become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And through God's amazing providence, the eventual dominion of all things in this world will be vested in the spiritual seed of Abraham so that with Christ we shall reign. Even now, by our prayer life, we reign with him in ordering the events of this universe. But then, as Christ appears, we shall reign with him forever and ever. All things are yours. You will inherit the world. This is why, as Christians, we do not give up on the world. We sing, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth his successive journeys run.
we spur on the missionary enterprise that every corner of the globe may be evangelized, that the dominion of the seed of Abraham may have its sway. We invade every segment of life. We do not leave education to the secularist. We do not leave government to the politician. We do not leave business to the greedy. But the Christian man and woman who knows himself an heir of the promise that Jesus Christ shall reign is out to take over the segments of life in his blessed name and to see his influence penetrate into business, into neighborhoods, into civic life, and to lift the whole level of life until the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. You shall inherit the world. Ah, saving faith is the key to that kind of a promise as cosmic and mind-boggling as it is. The entrance to it, the way we found our way to this airship, saving faith. Oh, blessed grace, given by God, anointed by Him, chosen of Him, and precious to us. The passage moves on where it begins to show to us how dear saving faith is to God. How all the way here we've been dancing about because it was so precious to us. But then saving faith's unique blessedness is the way it delights God. That is, He loves it because it moves us out of ourselves. Saving faith has as its basis self-renunciation. Because there's only one way to come to God, and that's in utter submission. Nobody can come with his chest out. You come in submission to God. He has ordained it that way. And he loves faith because faith in itself means that you abhor yourself in repentance and move out to him in faith, away from yourself. That's just what Abraham did. If he'd looked at himself, his own circumstances, his aged and weak body, his poor wife, if he began to look at himself, he would have no faith whatsoever. But saving faith means you disregard yourself, your abilities or limitations, and you move out away from yourself toward God. That's what Paul did when he said, I don't have any righteousness of my own. No, he had abandoned all that. That's what the Israelites did when they had Pharaoh behind them with, with the chariots and they had the mountains on either side and they had the sea in front of them and there was nowhere to go. They moved away from their cells. They stood still and waited for the salvation of God. And that's you, my friend. If you're here without Christ, God is pursuing you behind and hell is in front of you. You're caught between them. There's only one thing to do. Move out of yourself and flee to God. That's the other aspect, you see, of saving faith. Saving faith has its object in God. The reason saving faith is so great is its object. That is, it has an infinite object. Its object is perfection. Perfection. 
God. And when you have saving faith, you have laid a finger on perfection. And it's no wonder then that faith saves because by laying a finger on perfection, righteousness is imputed to you. That's your channel. Faith lays a hand on the perfection of God. What an object. As Abraham began to understand the object of his faith and moved out toward it, he realized that this God whom he wanted to trust and whom he was being called to trust was a God who would raise the dead. That's why he could say to the servant when he took Isaac up on the mountain to sacrifice him, wait here, we will be back. He believed that even though he killed Isaac, in response to that command, God would raise him up. The God who raises the dead. See, faith gets its beauty and its power from the object which is God in his character and in its greatness. So if somebody says, oh, it's so hard to believe, my question to them is to believe whom? When they say it's hard to believe, it means that they have not realized who it is that they're doubting. See, doubt does not honor God. It is not a humble thing. Unbelief is the greatest dishonor anyone can give to God because it distrusts his moral character. The essence of saving faith is self-renunciation and placing ourselves in God, our whole reliance, our whole trust, not in ourselves, but in Him. The reason God delights in faith is that the very path a man needs to tread to come to Him is the path which faith unfolds. Humility in self and confidence in God. Now, it's always been this way. We must not make any separation. That's the point of Romans 4, that there is one story of faith, that Abraham's a kind of representative man. He's like the stem of a tree, the trunk, and you and I are, are but the branches. He's like the model, the type, and we're those that follow. Because, you see, Abraham saw God had a promise that a Redeemer was coming. He was going to bring forth a Savior out of his loins. He had that promise. It was unclear at times, and he struggled to try to believe, and God kept reassuring and strengthening him, and as he believed, he gave more and more glory to God. That's the best way to give glory to God is to have faith. But we on this side, we're saved, not as Abraham was in looking toward Christ's coming, believing he would come, but we're on the other side. We can look back and see that he has come. And that the two great events of his life are the cross and the resurrection. That if we see that he died for our trespasses and believe that genuinely for my trespasses and that he rose again that I might have a guarantee that his offering was accepted and that he could go into the heavenly places and offer blood for me, 
if I can hold those things in faith in my heart, I shall be saved. Abraham was saved by looking toward them. I'm saved by looking back at them. But the process of faith is the same. And it is that saving faith that delights God. So Paul could write later in this letter, if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God hath raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. There may be someone here who's asking the question this morning, do I have saving faith? May I suggest a test? Ask yourself, just these points. Ask yourself if there is in your heart a great esteem for Christ. Saving faith always elevates Christ. Then ask if there is within you a refining process going on. Saving faith purifies the life. Ask if there is obedience. Saving faith melts the human will into the will of God. Ask if there's a change going on so that you are growing into the image of Christ. You're being assimilated into his likeness. And ask if you're growing in strength. True living faith grows. You ought to if you have saving faith, be able to carry burdens this year that you couldn't carry last year. That's saving faith. Some of you, in answer to those, may find that you have saving faith and you rejoice, but you say, oh, it's so weak. I'm not sure it's strong enough to save me. Oh, friend, there is good news for you. Weak faith, if it is saving faith, weak faith, is true because you don't need a strong hand to hold on to Christ a weak hand will hold on to him don't be discouraged grasp him with all the faith you do have and it'll grow a weak faith can be very fruitful God can use a weak faith if it is true saving faith and a weak faith can grow Daily you can say to God, increase my faith. Didn't he tell us, receive those that are weak in faith? After telling us to receive those that are weak in faith, would he turn them away? Don't be discouraged if you have true faith, even though it's weak. Revel in the saving faith you do have. Celebrate it. Why, it goes all the way back to Abraham and David. It's the universal answer for men's sins. It's the key to inherit the promise of God. And it is the very thing that God delights in. It is your entrance to heaven. It wasn't, after all, made by you. It is a gift of the Spirit of God. The Bible says that the arm of the Lord creates faith. The arm of the Lord. How does he do it? 
he comes into the mind and enlightens it. And he comes up to the will which is resisting him and fighting against him and conquers the will and regenerates. Only the regenerated man can have saving faith. It's the gift of God. You didn't produce it. You can't be proud of it. It's God's gift. Something to celebrate. But don't anyone go home saying, well, if God must do it, and it's his gift, then I'll just wait and let him do it. The only way to know whether you have saving faith is to exert faith. Christ says, repent and believe the gospel, and you are all commanded to do so. Therefore, repent and believe, and you will know the preciousness and the marvel of saving faith. Let us pray. Blessed and gracious Lord, our feeble grasp of your word needs to be supplemented and augmented by the ministry of the Spirit. And so we would subject ourselves to his teaching of us. May this passage be the subject of our meditation and our study and reveal its deeper truths to us by your Spirit. Lord, touch the heart without faith and grant the grace of open eyes and the embracing of Christ and the joy of the new life.